Hi, welcome to the Lawcast. My name is Melanie Thorley and I'm the solicitor here um, at MJT Law. Today we are going to go through three things. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about is a, I don't know if it's disturbing, but Reese Goodsell filed an unfair dismissal against Sydney Trains uh, back in uh, 2023. Now the, the matter was heard and a decision was handed down at the in December 2023. Now I know we're in February and it's a month and a bit later but I thought it'd be really because we haven't done one of these uh, cases for a little while and I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of talk it through fairly quickly. So Reese uh, is a cocaine user. That's, <laughs> um, I guess, okay, except cocaine is, you know, an illegal drug, so on and so forth. Um, but we're focusing on not the criminal element of cocaine use, <laughs> but in fact, what happens in the workplace. Now, Reese participated in ingesting cocaine some days before he needed to present to work. Now this is a train driver. Um, he presents to work, he gets tested, there's a random um, drug testing um, situation going on at his work, one would expect there would be, uh, and his workplace has a zero tolerance to drug use. Now he was found to have cocaine, he tested positive for cocaine. Now it's a very long case and it's a bit convoluted to be fair but the gist of it is that um, he was terminated for having a positive cocaine test. His argument was it may have been positive but I wasn't impaired and filed an unfair dismissal application. Now the employee employment lawyer in me says, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I like the fact that the employee wasn't impaired when he was coming to work. I like the fact that uh, he made that very clear. But the employer employment lawyer in me says, are you kidding me? We, this is a random drug test. He, he tested positive. The simple fact that he got caught today um, and not what maybe wasn't impaired, surely that isn't enough. Now, the, the case was a little bit, like I said, it was a bit long and the commission found it to be an unfair dismissal. They agreed with Reese that the fact he wasn't impaired meant that he shouldn't have lost his job. Now, Obviously, there's a bunch of stuff there that we need to think about. And when I think about um, uh, what happens next, I'm actually personally a little bit shocked. We have a train driver. <laughs> okay. okay, so they made an order for reinstatement. So he got his job back. Um, and he needed to be reinstated no, earlier, no later than the 22nd of December. So this case was handed down in early December and 20 days later, he was told they needed to be reinstated. Um, he was also given, there was also an order to maintain his continuity of employment. So I actually find this order really, really damaging. Um, yeah, look, I get it. The guy wasn't impaired and that's 
fair enough. I mean, it's when we think about drug testing, we think about what the reason for it is. And in, in the workplace, we think about impairment. I, I can get on board with that. But what I can't get on board with is the public utility of this. I don't like the fact that Reese has got his job back after being a, a, um, a cocaine user who got caught once with a random drug test and they still got him his job back. I really don't like the fact that I could be on a train with somebody who has tested positive for cocaine and the workplace can't get rid of him. I, it's, a, it's a kind of a personal thing, I guess. It's not really a legal decision. Uh, but it does provide me with some really interesting questions about what, what, the work, what level uh, of egregious activity does an employee have to engage in in order to be terminated and at what level does, that, does the workplace need to be responsible for that? So I guess, you know, for the workplace, they probably could have terminated him in a different way. Um, you know, perhaps um, inputted uh, a condition upon him that he was no longer random drug tested, but actually drug tested each day uh, for a series of weeks or months or whatever. That probably would have been very expensive for the company. Uh, so there were probably ways that the company could have worked around dealing with this employee uh, that would have ended up perhaps uh, with his dismissal uh, without sort of this, and I'm going to use a term very loosely, knee-jerk reaction of terminating for a positive drug test. On the flip side, um, for those of you who are regular podcast listeners, know that I had a little bit of a rant not so long ago about frivolous claims. Um, I went through some of the cases that were just thrown out, um, and I also had a podcast about cases where I thought the, the applicant was just properly having a laugh. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a sensible action here, but because there's a case to be tried, they still progressed it and it still went through to a hearing. Um, and, and in this case, if it had been that the dismissal was fair, I would have put it squarely into that bucket, that what was this train driver doing filing an unfair dismissal application on the basis that he was a cocaine user that was snapped. But the commission just doesn't agree with me. And it's a very, very strong lesson, I think, for employers to learn about what is the right way to terminate an employee in these circumstances, um, if they're going to choose to do that, and what would have made the difference. So, the next thing I'm going to talk about is another completely insane case from my perspective. Okay, so in this one, this actually came down last, late last week, and it's created a bit of a flurry in the Fair Work Commission, and I'll talk about that kind of next. This case was about a person who filed a, um, an application and he did this through general protections. So it wasn't an unfair dismissal, it was a general protections application. And he used an organization, non-lawyer advocates, and probably a little while ago I had a little bit of a discussion about 
what um, non-lawyer advocates actually do uh, and how they actually interact with their, their client, the employee. But in this case, we have, an, we have an applicant who filed an application in general protections and used a company called Employee Dismissals. Now, the case says that Employee Dismissals was acting, the application was filed by employee dismissals acting as an applicant's paid agent. Now that's in the Fair Work Act actually okay. Um, it says also that a conciliation conference was held before a member on the 5th of October 2023 um, in which the parties agreed to a settlement. The terms of settlement were emailed to the parties and on the 13th of November the applicant emailed the commission saying he hadn't received the settlement amount. So this is about five weeks later and the commission went, that's weird, because normally the settlement terms are 7 or 14 days. We would normally expect that settlement to be signed uh, within a few days, and kind of that's how it works. But in this case, employee dismissals um, sent the um, settlement to their client, the client signed it, it got sent to the other side, they signed it, and um, and the money was paid, but it goes stranger. So what had happened was employee dismissals sent to the employer something called an irrevocable undertaking. Now that's basically a simple document that the client signs saying that something can happen. And in this case, the irrevocable undertaking was that the something that can happen was that the money gets paid into uh, unfair dismissals account, business account, um, trust account, business account, however you want to call it. Sorry, employee dismissals, business account. Um, he also, the, the applicant also contacted the commission and said he hadn't had any correspondence from employee dismissals. He had no idea what was happening in this matter. Um, often the um, non-lawyer advocate will prepare the application and send it through without the applicant really ever seeing it. Um, tends to conciliation, whether the conciliation is um, the consultation is normally done over the telephone. Um, sorry, it's done through Teams phones now. And uh, the um, non-lawyer advocate will advocate on behalf of that employee. Now, the decision was made that there was a settlement. The settlement terms were drawn up. That settlement terms were signed. And from the respondent's position, the settlement was paid, but to the uh, uh, employee dismissals company uh, with the irrevocable undertaking. Now, on the 17th of November, employee dismissals filed a notice of discontinuance to the Fair Work Commission. Now, on the 20th of November, the applicant emailed the commission reiterating that he hadn't been paid and wants a second conciliation conference. Now this is, this is really kind of normal because the non-lawyer advocates kind of do things without that applicant knowing fair amount, but this is kind of getting a little bit out of control, yeah? So we've got an employee who has a conciliation way back in October, 
very early October, 5th of October, settlements were um, done and then by the 17th of November, sorry, the 20th of November, that applicant is now going, commission, I don't know what's happening, I haven't received any monies, I, I want another conciliation, I want to wind this all back. And from the app respondent, the employer's perspective, they tended this conciliation, they engaged a lawyer, they've, they've, they've signed the deal, they have a deed, they've paid the money, and now what? It's all going to get up in the air. This is a problem. Now, there was a notice of discontinuance that was filed, and that actually extinguishes that claim. Um, the applicant submitted that he didn't instruct employee dismissals to discontinue the matter, and that the paid agent never explained the terms of the settlement um, to the applicant before signing. The applicant further submitted that he thought the parties discussed. Now, this is at a hearing, by the way, so the respondent employer is still being dragged into this, still spending money, still taking time out of their day from a settlement that they thought had been finalised. So the applicant further submitted that he thought the parties discussed in the conference that the settlement sum would be paid into his personal bank account. Well during these negotiations are normally done in shuttle. So the respondent only hears that the money is going to, you know, how much money the other side wants. And if the respondent agrees to pay that sort of that amount of money, then, you know, if there's an agreement, they don't hear about how that money, um, what the discussions are happening on the applicant side. All they hear is, this is how much he wants, do you want to pay it? Um, the the applicant's now complaining that employee dismissals never advised at the conference that the settlement sum would be paid elsewhere. So I think there was kind of an implied or um, assumed kind of situation where the money would be paid into his own bank account. Employees dismissal submitted that as per the settlement, they had authority to dis discontinue the matter once the obligations had been discharged. Employee, submitted, employee dismissals further said that um, the applicant signed the irrevocable authority indicating payment of the settlement sum will be made into that trust account and that the applicant should have understood the terms of, a, of engagement with employee dismissals before signing and said that the settlement sum would be applied towards the payment of the agency fees which were in excess and if any will be dispersed to the applicant. So that's a, it's kind of a legalese or um, very formal way of saying, buyer beware. Dude, you hired me. I have no obligation to behave like a lawyer. Uh, so I behaved in the way that was best for my company, not in best with you. I gave you an irrevocable undertaking. You signed it. Buyer beware. Now, we're not talking about purchasing something off eBay. We're not going to Gumtree or Craigslist and going, oh, I want to purchase a, you know, a microwave. And, you know, you're silly enough not to plug it in before you purchase it. You get it home and it's not working. That is about buyer beware. This is about, um, this is about uh, employee dismissals basically rushing through, I assume, rushing through a process to an applicant who's already feeling in distress, um, attending a conciliation, not explaining anything because they don't have to, as long as the, the, the client is saying yes, 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 it doesn't matter 
they, there, are, there are no rules or regulations around what these uh, paid agents do or how they explain things to their clients. It's nothing like lawyers who have to make sure their client understands everything that's happening, that they're getting proper instructions and that those instructions are done freely. Um, so they're basically saying the buyer beware. And by the way, the settlement sum didn't exceed uh, the amount of money with which you owe me, so I'm going to keep it all. Obviously, this was a shock to the employee. Now, the reason why this case has come up, or the reason why I'm bringing this case up, is because of what happens next. So what the full bench did is they found that the page agents may file a notice of discontinuance only if they've been expressly instructed or authorized by the client to do so. Now, in this case, employee dismissals did not have that express instructions. They said because the deed had been signed, because the deed said to file a notice of discontinuance within X amount of days, uh, we get to, you know, we get to do this. Now, the full bench didn't agree. You shouldn't have filed that notice of discontinuance. And now we've got the situation where the employer respondent is now hooked again on the situation. What, what on earth is going on for this poor respondent? So the full bench determined that the notice of discontinuance filed by the paid agent, other than in circumstances above, being the you know express authority is invalid so there was no notice of discontinuance got wound back the full bench rejected employees dismissals submissions that it had authority to close the matter um, as per the terms of the settlement and um, the full bench added that the administrative step doesn't have a legal effect now the full bench granted the applicant, and this is the employee request for further conference as it viewed the dispute unresolved. Now, what happens with the employer who's paid that money? Well, they've been told to take the matter back, ask for costs against um, employee dismissals. Oh, hopefully they get everything all their costs, indemnity, which means every single cent they paid to the lawyers in conjunction to what happened in that matter. But now the employee manages to wind it all back. The employer is stuck again after having paid their lawyer, after returning to conciliation, after signing the deed, having a deed of settlement, after paying monies to employee dismissals. This is a terrible case. It's not that the full bench did it, got it wrong. I think they got it right for the employee. But the problem is this poor employer has now been thrown into this mix again without having any fault whatsoever. And remember, it's still not decided whether or not the general protections were breached. This is not about whether or not the case has legs. This is about what happened at conciliation. Now, I think that uh, the Fair Work Commission then decided, because this only happened last week, by the way, uh, that this is a terrible, terrible situation. And uh, on the 31st of January, 
So after this case came out, the Fair Work Commission has established what they call a working group to develop measures aimed at ensuring that paid agents who appear before the Fair Work Commission operate according to the standards of a lawyer acting in the same circumstances. So in this case, um, that means they conduct themselves in an ethical and honest manner. I'm not sure if they're going to be using the, um, the same ethical standards and rules that the lawyers need to use, but certainly we would expect them to be um, compliant with you know, a great deal of them. Act in the best interests of the parties that they represent. So they need to act in the best interests of their client, not the best interests of their company. And generally operate in accordance with the standards that are broadly consistent with what would be expected of a lawyer in the same circumstances. So that's kind of the um, what they're trying. As a result, the, they, they're going to seek to identify and guide um, the implementation of measures um, aimed at those things. So conduct themselves in an ethical and honest manner. Um, act in the best interests of their client and generally act in accordance with the same standards broadly that the lawyers have to use. Now, this is going to take a while. This is absolutely going to take a while. Uh, weeks, months, maybe years, I have no idea, but at least it's on the table. I have long been concerned about paid agents and the way that they operate um, in the space with which I work. This is because paid agents do not have to act in their clients' best interests. They do not have to have the same ethical standards as lawyers. Therefore, some of those outcomes are very, very difficult. Um, there are shakedowns. There are lots of behaviours from those people who, who lawyers would never be able to behave like. Um, for example, I had a paid agent on the other side fairly recently who changed the deed, got their client to sign it, sent it to me and asked me that my client to sign it. And if I didn't do my due diligence and look at that deed first, um, my client would have signed a deed that had been altered that we hadn't known anything about. Now, lawyers aren't allowed to do that. That is actually a breach of our solicitor conduct rules. We, if we sign, if we change the deed, um, first of all, we should go back to the other side and say, no, 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 this is how the deed is, should be. This is what my client wants the deed to look like. But if they ask their client to sign it and get it signed, then there needs to be a very clear outline in the document that I receive that the deed has been changed, either in an email that's very clear or in the document itself or in a, an accompanying letter. But it needs to be highlighted. We, we have obligations to the profession to do that. We can't just hide things. And I was very upset when I found this deed had been altered and this sent to me and asked me to get my client to sign it because their client had already signed it. Um, that adds additional pressure, obviously, on my firm to make sure that my client's rights are supported. But it also highlights this exact issue. There are rogues out there who behave in ways that are just purely unethical irresponsible and just not within their client's best interests. And this task group is going to be set up, or working group is going to be set up to try and establish a true set of rules in this space. I think bring it, bring it on. Make it as harsh as it is for us. I think that these paid agents need to clean house. I think it needs to be cleaned up and I think it needs to be done better. We should behave ethically when we're working on behalf of other people. It is not our money. It is not our fight. 
we are literally acting in their best interests on this point. And these poor employees are expecting that. Now, obviously, I don't know what's happening as an employer solicitor on the other side. Paid agents could be some type of HR company. I haven't seen many true HR companies act in an interest very similar to these uh, companies like employee dismissals. Um, I don't know whether they're out there, but it does concern me broadly. Okay, everyone. What's, what, what, I guess I should also say, what does that mean to my clients today? Well, I can tell you, earlier this week, I was at an uh, unfair dismissal conciliation and the commissioner kicked me out. It's the first time it's happened to me in literally a decade. I, was, I had forewarned my client that that's a possibility, but because it hadn't happened to me in more than a decade, I told my client that the possibility was incredibly remote, but it happened. And I think it happened because of this case. I think it happened because of this working group. Commissioners don't want these, um, these agents, lawyers there anymore. They don't want them to be at those conciliations anymore because it actually creates more work for them, it creates more work for the Commission, and it creates more uncertainty for both parties. Now, I'm not saying that it was right to kick me out, but I can see the, the thought process behind it. Um, I just wish it didn't exist like that. Um, you know, it kind of criminalises, if I could use that term broadly or you know, loosely, everyone criminalizes everyone, even those of us who are doing absolutely the right thing by our clients. And our clients get serious uncertainty in this space. Will they be allowed the representation they paid for or won't they? What's actually going to happen here? I, I think there needs to be a fundamental change and it needs to happen fast. Thank you for watching everyone. <laughs> you got a little bit out of this today mad train case i don't know what's going on there um and we've got this crazy uh, um, uh employee dismissals case where employee dismissals was literally wrung out to dry in this case and i think it ought to be published 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 but you know it's already out there. I, you know, you can you can download it if you like. It's it's published, but it's just not in the mainstream media. Um, probably because no one wants it to be. Uh, and the ramifications for everyone out there, employees and employers alike. Um, do remember, if you take it back to conciliation as an employee, um, that employer's already paid. They might not be very interested in paying once more. Uh, buyer beware. This is a tough one. Thank you, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast um, at the Lawcast. And uh, I'll see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for watching.